A lot of the problems that happen with small to medium-sized businesses is they accumulate personal data of customers like dust bunnies. Like they just, they collect it and they collect it and they keep it and they keep it and they keep it. You are listening to the Mindful Business Security Show, brought to you by Focivity, where we answer your questions and simplify information security for small businesses. Get the clarity you need to focus on the things that matter. Hey there, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Accidental CISO, and I am glad that you are listening today. I want this show to be the best one out there for business owners and leaders to learn about cybersecurity how you can protect your business mindfully and strategically. To make that happen, we need you to ask the questions and shape the content so that the topics that we cover are always the most relevant. Our callers today have great questions on a variety of topics in their small businesses, so we hope you'll enjoy this episode. If you're just discovering the show, please subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. My guest host this episode was a mentor to me when I was coming to grips with my unceremonious ascension to the CISO role, and I'm proud to be able to call her a friend today. She loves geeking out on technology policy and hanging out with folks who talk to politicians and career bureaucrats. But really, who doesn't, right? Once emotionally scarred by a bagpipe arrangement of ACDC's Highway to Hell, she now credits that incident for mentally preparing her for a career as a chief information security officer. Today, she's the CISO for Cisco's Security Business Group, and prior to joining Cisco, she was the Chief Information Security Officer at The Ohio State University. Her book, Navigating the Cybersecurity Career Path, was just released this fall from Wiley. I am blown away to be joined by such an amazing and talented industry veteran today. Welcome to the show, Helen Patton. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm having flashbacks about bagpipes and ACDC as we speak. So thank you for that. <laughs> I think they're one of those things that people either love them or hate them. I, I don't think I've ever met somebody that's like, oh, bagpipes are all right. Yeah, it's how it goes. <laughs> yeah, so first and foremost, I, I want to hear about the book that you have just published. Um, tell us about the book and where folks can find it. Ah, so let's start with that. You can find the book on Amazon and you can find it in soft copy or you can find it in an audible version. I did not narrate the book. So you get an American accent version of the book if you listen to it. Um, the reason I wrote the book, when I was the CISO at Ohio State in particular, I would have a lot of people who would ask me for coffee and they would want to buy me coffee so they could pick my brain about getting into security or being in security or leading a security team for the first time or whatever it was. And I found myself over-caffeinated. There was not enough hours in the day and there was not enough time to drink coffee. And what I was realizing was that the questions people were asking were very similar, <laughs> especially uh, for those people trying to get into security. You know, it's like, how do I do security? And, and so my question back is, well, what kind of security do you want to do? And they're like, oh, you mean there's more than one? Yes, there's more than one. Um, and then they'd be like, do I need a degree or do I need certifications? Or, um, you know, how do I get into security if I've already got 10 years of work experience and I don't want to start all over again and all of those kinds of things. So the questions were common and there was lots of them and I was already blogging regularly. So I, I was blogging about those topics as they came up, but I decided ultimately that it was time for me to put the, all of those questions and answers together in one place, and the book was conceived and born. So uh, that that's where it came from. So I'm mentoring at scale with that book is the plan. That's a great way to do it. You know, honestly, uh, one of the things we talk about a lot in business in general is building systems to scale and, and doing that sort of in your personal life and your mentoring is a fantastic uh, application of that. Uh, I love that you're this active in the community. I know, uh, as I mentioned, when I was first <laughs> thrust into the CISO role, whether I liked it or not, uh, you know, it... it and and I grew into it through the help of of folks like you and just 
you know, having having you reach out and and ask me, I, I think on several occasions, just through like Twitter DMs, like, "Hey, are you all right? <laughs> this thing, you sound kind of dark right now," um, and that sort of thing. Like, I, I think that is it's fantastic. We've got a, a really great community in cybersecurity Absolutely. as well. Um, a lot of that has been around Twitter, you know, and and since we originally met through uh, through Twitter, as we're recording this show. Um, Twitter has just recently been taken private. Um, you know, so folks listening to this later since podcasts are forever, was just recently taken private by Elon Musk. And it's been a very tumultuous few weeks for this company. They've had massive layoffs. They've let key teams go that have left people scratching their heads. Um, they have had significant changes to their account verification policies. They've had moderation failures. They've had missteps rolling out new features. And they've gone through, as a result of all this, like rampant impersonation uh, on the site as well. I mean, this list just keeps going on and on. Uh, all of this has been making headlines and caused a lot of uncertainty about the future of the platform. And I know a lot of small businesses are using Twitter for outreach, for marketing, for customer service, for any number of reasons in their business from the perspective of a CISO like what does all this mean for small business owners and should they be concerned about this it depends how integrated their business processes are with twitter um so it you know to to be very basic about it when we think about security the elements of security that we think about most often are confidentiality availability and integrity right? And the changes that have been going on in Twitter have had a negative impact on all three of those things. So there are questions about whether with, with the layoffs of the security teams and also generically engineering teams whose job it is to maintain security controls at Twitter, if you're sharing information with Twitter that you would not want to be made public, this is potentially now at risk. So you, the confidentiality of your information might be at risk. The availability of the Twitter service or your services that you provide to your customers through Twitter may be at risk. And we've already seen the challenges around integrity of data, right? Just go ask the pharmaceutical company whose share price dropped by some X billion dollars because someone pretended to be them on Twitter. So, the, you know, the ability for you as a small business owner to be um, to be credible through the Twitter platform is at risk. So I think it's a good opportunity for small businesses to examine what they use Twitter for, how important it is for their livelihood, and to really make serious decisions about whether or not they want to continue that partnership Regardless of what you think about Elon Musk, you know, just the, the, the infrastructure and the way the Twitter service is running is is questionable right now. So you have to take that into account. Anything you can offer to, you know, for them to protect themselves with this account? Or is this something that's kind of out of our hands and we just have to watch it play out? Yeah, the, is there something you can immediately do? Um I'm not sure that there is anything a small business owner can immediately do. And, you know, if, if you've got the kind of technology where you're directly integrating with the technology of Twitter, the backend infrastructure, I would definitely be putting focus on that integration and making sure that you've got the right controls around it. Most small business owners aren't that though. They're interfacing with Twitter through the user experience platform. And there's not a lot you can do to protect yourself there. Um, I do think you you would want to, again, if you're using the Twitter platform to represent your company and you think you're at risk of someone impersonating you or otherwise interfering with that, I, I think you should be thinking about what your alternatives are and if that were to happen, how you would respond. So being prepared for some kind of incident and knowing what you need to do if that happens is, is probably really the only thing you can be doing at, at this moment in time, short of ending your relationship with Twitter altogether. One of the, the things that I was thinking as well is I, I know they uh, they killed the service that was doing uh, multi-factor authentication, the two-step authentication with SMS codes. Um, 
they've still got it if you have an app set up to, to do the tokens on your phone, but a lot of businesses may not even have MFA set up, or multi-factor authentication set up. Or if they did, maybe they were using the SMS space. So I think, you know, small businesses probably would do well to go back in and make sure that they have multi-factor authentication turned on because if somehow passwords or, or databases are somehow breached uh, at Twitter and somebody is able to access that account, uh, anything that that account, as you mentioned, with those integrations has access to could potentially be at risk. So it's just some of those really, really basic things that need to be in place, but folks may have things that they expected were in place that no longer operate properly because of changes that Twitter has been making. Right. I do think there is also, um, we should be thinking about worst case, like, and there's a lot of speculation. Is this the end of Twitter? Will it, you know, will it go away overnight? Will it die some slow death? Um, But to the extent that you can download copies of your data and have that available to you and not have to rely on Twitter to get that, and particularly customer lists or anything else that you may be using Twitter for, making sure that you've got local copies of that information is also very important right now until until it becomes more clear what the future of Twitter and the timelines associated with that future really are. That's another great suggestion. I downloaded mine uh, earlier in the week, and it took two days from the time that I clicked the button to, to request it until I received the notification that your data is ready to download uh, to get it. So folks that want to have that data backed up should definitely plan ahead and make sure that they've got that backed up and take a snapshot now, because if if the site becomes unstable, it may not be something that they're able to get in a timely manner. The other thing, of course, is if you're using Twitter to do outreach to your customer base, um, what's your alternative? And do your customers on Twitter know what that alternative is? So getting reminders out to them that says, hey, you can find us on Twitter, but you can also find us on Instagram or TikTok or wherever you might have your alternative path. Now's a really good time to remind your customers of that too, just in case the worst happens. Last question here before we go jump to the, the callers on the phones. Uh, if there was one thing that you wanted small business owners to know about information security in their business, what would that be? I think I would want them to know that actually security is not that hard. We have a tendency to think of it as this very technical field, and it can be. I'm not going to suggest it's not. But for a small business owner, really what needs to happen is the business owner needs to be really clear on what is what the purpose of their business is, what the information is you handle to execute that purpose and the systems you have and work with your technology staff or your technology service providers to make sure that those things are as protected as you feel comfortable protecting them. Um, And that's really all there is to it. This is risk, right? This is do you brush your teeth in the morning and at night and floss? Or do you run the risk of poor oral hygiene? Do you wear a seatbelt? Do you not wear a seatbelt? Do you wear a bike helmet? Do you not wear a bike helmet? Every every action we take everywhere involves risk. And being a small business owner involves risk. You're not, you, you can't not have cybersecurity risk and be a small business owner. It's going to be there. The question is, how much risk are you willing to absorb? And just make sure you're comfortable with that. That, that's where I would go with that. It's not something you can ignore, but it is something that you can have a process around managing so you feel like you're doing what you need to do. Yeah, you would ask a question. This actually made me think of this. You would ask a question on LinkedIn about what, uh, I think I forget exactly how you were, but what a good security program or a mature security program looks like. Uh, and I was thinking about that, and I, I didn't respond back on LinkedIn because I, I was thinking about it later, and I wasn't near my computer at the time. But like I, I boiled it down in my head to like a sufficiently mature security program doesn't look a whole lot like security. No, it looks like operational excellence. That's right. You know, is is what it ends up looking like because it's yes. having the right tools, the right people, the right training. You know, the the organization knows what they do. And they're able to, to do that consistently and they've got the right tools and equipment and things just, they run smoothly. And 
security and all of that just it, it kind of blends into enabling the business and and the efficiency and and everything else that that they're shooting for as as managers in a business Absolutely. Security is a funny thing. Um, the reason I got into security is not because I actually thought security was an end goal that I wanted. I don't like change that I can't control and direct. Like I like change if I'm in charge of it and I know it's going to happen. And I'm the person that parks in the same parking spot every day and I brush my teeth and get ready for work in the same order every day and it's predictable and it's boring. I want security to be predictable and boring so that a small business owner knows what they're doing during the day and it happens. They don't have to get unexpectedly and rudely interrupted by some cyber event that they didn't count on, right? So I'm in security to make life boring. That's my mission in life. Boring is definitely good in our field. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to jump to the phones here and uh, take a couple of phone calls here from, from callers to ask their questions about security. You ready to go to the phones? Absolutely. Awesome. Let's go. Do the cybersecurity risks to your business have you confused? Visit Focivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast and sign up to be a caller on a future episode. On the line here with us for our first caller, we have Nick from Minneapolis. Hey, Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah. How can we help you? Well, um, I have two questions here, and I kind of I'm really interested in some uh, feedback from Helen here uh, and from you. Um, like, what are some great first steps? Um, so, uh, my my first question is is you know in a small private medical practice uh, that typically would not have the most technically savvy individuals, what would be your first recommendations in securing the localized technology in use in that practice? It's a really good question, and um, I, my dad was a physical therapist at, with his own practice, so I, so near and dear to my heart. Um, I think so. I'm going to make some assumptions about the practice, and feel free to tell me if these assumptions are not right. I'm going to assume that what is local is local networking kind of equipment and local PCs and laptops and so forth, and that those things are accessing cloud-based patient record systems and those kinds of things, right? So with that kind of thinking around what the architecture is, really what you what the local practice is going to be on the hook for is is that equipment that's in the medical center itself. And so you're really looking at what can you do to make sure that the the information that's on that local network and on those local PCs and laptops is not available to anybody who just happens to be walking by or sitting in your waiting room and that those machines that have access to the internet uh, are protected from downloading malware and those kinds of things. So at the network layer, I'd be thinking about things like if you've got a default password for your router, I'd want you to change it, right? Uh, if you've got a if you've got a default administrative account called admin, let's change that to something else. Um, so you know, just doing some basic protections, and usually the your network provider of your office is going to give you recommendations on what those steps would be. So changing default passwords, um, the kind of encryption you may have on your local network and so forth, you want to be able to get something that's, that's strong there. Um, on the endpoints themselves, on your laptops and desktops, and even on your cell phones, if you're using tablets and and cell phones and things like that, making sure that those things are up to date with their software and their operating system so that you're not using old technology that may have more known security bugs is an easy thing to do. Um, Certainly making sure that those devices have some kind of anti-malware, keeping the local system clean, clean from malicious software and those kinds of things, viruses, really basic one-on-one kinds of things. Um, 
And I would say for everybody who's in that office, who's logging into systems, if you're logging into a system that contains patient data, you want to have multi-factor authentication capabilities there. Now, when you're in a medical office, you're logging into machines all the time. So I'm not suggesting actually that you do a, a heavy password push there. But if you've got a token like a YubiKey or something like that, that people can use as their second factor, I'd be looking for those kinds of support, login authentication supports as well. I don't know. I, th- I think that's where I'd start. Just a, a couple of things that I might add to that on the, like the anti-malware software that you put on, uh, you know, small offices, it, you likely aren't going to have a dedicated IT staff. So if you put anti-malware software on there from a vendor that also can provide monitoring for that, um, you know, there there are lots of vendors out there that can do that, uh, what they call endpoint detection and response. And it's that response piece that's also critical. And and you would obviously have to have, you know, contracts and things in place with them for them to protect your HIPAA responsibilities uh, with that. But having that monitoring is is something I would say that I think any small business really should consider when they're putting that antivirus software on their machine is to upgrade kind of a step above just basic antivirus and go to an antivirus that can be managed as a whole instead of each individual machine separately and include the monitoring feature features with that. Uh, and and to uh, the, the other, other thing I, I like to talk about too is with especially with non-technical uses is streamlining any processes. You know, Helen's comment about like the YubiKeys and that kind of stuff where you've got multi-factor, maybe a, a token fingerprint sort of thing or a uh, a card that you badge in that does the radio near field thing where you just kind of tap it to log in. Just anything to make things faster and easier for folks so that while it is more secure, what they see day to day is less work, less frustration, less steps. Uh, and then on those machines, uh, depending on what what you need, but especially if things are mostly web-based now or limited number of applications, there's like kiosk mode on computers that you can enable where you take away a lot of the capabilities and the system acts more like a, a kiosk that can't really be changed. And it limits what you can get to and a lot of times folks will think about taking away these types of access and things uh, in companies as being about them. Like, oh, you don't trust us to do that. But if, if you turn it around a little bit, it's it's more about there are other people that if they get access to this, we want to limit what they can do with it. And it's not that we don't trust our internal people, but it's about how do we limit sort of that blast radius of what somebody else could do if they do happen to get access to one of these systems. Yeah, we've uh, we've, we've actually had some specific problems with our um, site previously too with uh, theft of people walking through the door and grabbing devices. And um, so things like those are, are real concerns. Yeah, and it's not like you can just lock the door. You know, you, you have yeah. customers coming in or patients coming in and out all the time. Um, so I have my second question here for us as well, which is uh, what strategies can be useful for small businesses to evaluate the security posture of many of the SaaS vendors that they rely on for normal business operations? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I, I have, um, I have seen small businesses where the providers have not done adequate security and unfortunately they've been on the end of on the receiving end of ransomware and other events as a result so it's a very important question um, I would actually start by uh, working with your insurance providers they often will have recommended service providers that they are willing to work with would be one two as you interview the service providers that you're considering using, I would be looking for a service provider who has had the experience of supporting a customer through a security incident. If I had a service provider who told me none of their clients had ever been breached, I would be immediately suspicious. Uh, Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get me. Um, But I I do think there is 
there is a value in in having a provider who knows how to respond to an incident when it happens and who all has to get engaged and what the expectations of them are going to be. Um, if you've got the bandwidth financially to do it, and I know small businesses often don't, but you can always have yet another company come in and do an assessment of the technology environment of the vendor you're doing. Now, you've got to make sure everybody agrees to that and contractually you can do that. But that can be a, another sort of way of validating that people are doing things in an appropriate way if you have concerns about your current vendor. Asking about a an incident is fantastic. I have not thought of that before, but it is a great question because if they can't speak intelligently to that process and what happened, uh, it's going to be very obvious that they don't know how to handle that type of thing. And if they if they don't even have a, a plan in place to be able to handle that, uh, it's it's not going to go well when it when it happens. Uh, what I found is when I was working in healthcare. Uh, SaaS as a provider for healthcare uh, providers. Uh, when I was talking with my upstream vendors, if I ask a vendor about doing a business associate agreement, those HIPAA BAA contracts, where you put those contract terms into your master service agreement or or whichever contract they end up in, if if the salesperson, when you ask about that BAA. You know, you don't spoon feed them what it is, but if you ask about it and they don't know what that is, uh, that's going to tell you pretty early on that like this company doesn't work with healthcare providers a whole lot because that's such a standard thing that healthcare providers need. And if their sales folks don't know what that is, their healthcare is not a primary business of theirs. Yeah. Well, great. Well, why don't you take care, man? Take care, Helen, and have a wonderful Thank weekend. You. Okay. You bet. Yep. Thanks, Nick. Next on the line, we have Christine from New Jersey. Hey, Christine, how are you doing today? Hi, AC. Good. How are you? I am doing very well. Very well. We've got Helen here with us. Uh, what What can we do to help you today? My background is I, I do outsourced CFO work, uh, primarily for investment firms. So security is a big concern for us. And I work a lot with startups. And um, security should be a concern for, for new businesses, a lot of times, uh, founders are very in tune with it. Um, sometimes they don't even think to think about it. Um, one of the problems is that they really don't know what to do to implement good security practices right out of the gate when they're forming the company. So what are some of the things that they can do in the early days of formation just to ensure that they have good infrastructure, policies, procedures in place so that if you know when when they get deep into making sure that they have good security set up, they don't have to go through a lot of pain undoing and unwinding some bad early decisions. It's a really great question, and it's an important question for small business owners to think about. My recommendations here, recognizing that when you're in startup land, you know your goal is not to invest a lot of back end dollars into your business it's all about getting your product ready for market and, and getting it out the door i do think there is you know when when you first pick up the phone and you say my my first call is to my lawyer my second call is to my accountant your third call should probably be to a technology service provider who can advise you on your cyber profile um so Regardless of whether you're a startup or not, depending on the kind of business you're trying to get into, there may be security regulations that you have to take into account right from the beginning. A generic lawyer may know that, but probably doesn't, right? So if you're not even sure, well, where do I find this expert to advise me? You can certainly start with your law firm and say, get me a technology lawyer. That can be a place to start. You can also go to your insurance company because I'm sure you're taking care of your accountant will want you to have insurance somewhere along the line. So your insurance company can also provide recommendations of, of companies or advisors that you could use. What I would encourage there is just to have an advisor come in and do an evaluation of the kind of business you're going to have, the kind of technology you want to use in the early days, and what kind of risk exposure you might need to be mindful of. And as long as you know that, then you can make a risk-based decision about whether you do anything about it or not. And in the beginning, you may choose not to, but at least you know what those things are. And then 
as you get further along your small business development life cycle, as you as you're further in, you're a little bit more mature, then you've got the opportunity to engage more permanently with a service provider who's going to help you build a security strategy that's in line with your development roadmap. So that's how I'd think about starting it. Something I'm seeing too is a lot of uh, IT managed service providers these days, the old way, it was all break fix. You had a contract with them and they were just tech support effectively. Like they might provide some hardware and that kind of stuff and and do some managed services as well, but it was largely break fix. Uh, But there's sort of a new breed of IT MSPs these days who really understand security and they have designed standard sets of tools that they bring in sort of as a turnkey option to drop in the IT infrastructure for a, a small business that includes all of the tools you're going to need for uh, you know, business productivity and email and security and everything else layered into that. And you don't have to make these decisions because they've already vetted these vendors and and determine that these tools work well together, and that's what they're able to to support. And the downside is it ends up being a little more expensive. Uh, from a a lot of them use a per seat price, so based on the size of the organization, it'll be a, a certain amount per employee or per license. Uh, but it's typically an all inclusive sort of thing, and it's a little more expensive for the the folks that are doing the the turnkey full managed security and infrastructure all together. Uh, but I feel like what you get for that uh, is worth significantly more than that additional cost per head, uh, because it really, in the, the grand scheme of running an organization, isn't all that expensive. And the time that you would waste with inefficiencies in your processes and having the wrong tools and, like like you said, unwinding bad decisions, um, I mean, that's that's incredibly expensive. And so just paying a little more upfront for somebody who can drop in a solution that you know is going to meet your needs uh, and and operate them and they know all these things work to well together is a really good way to look at it when you're when you're first getting started. That makes sense. And I, I see a lot of scrappy uh, startups where they try to do their IT setup themselves. You know, you get your web domain, you have a, a web hosting service, and you get your email through the web hosting service. So I think a lot of times uh, they make some bad mistakes. So getting a service provider up front is, is probably good advice for startups. It's quick and easy, but saving you know $20, $30, $50 a person per month for what the pain it's going to cause later when you have to undo that and migrate email and other services out of providers that aren't meeting your needs. I mean, that's that's an expensive project. Yeah, that makes sense. The one thing I will say too is um, there is a time cost associated with this recommendation, but it is never too early to be doing security awareness training with the staff that you have. Um, and there are a lot of free resources out there around what's basic security hygiene for people. So things like using a password manager or using multi-factor authentication when you log into your website that you're using to run your business and so forth. So I, I would also encourage small business owners to find a way to carve out a little bit of time for their staff and for themselves just to do basic training on security stuff. And it is everywhere. The federal government through the Department of Homeland Security offers it. Most states are offering small business security training that's free. So there's a lot of resources that are very good that are that can just help generally your employees, whether you've got one or 10 or 15 or 20, help them understand just basic security protocols that they can use at work and at home for that matter. And can their managed services provider provide that type of training? Yes, the the MSSP certainly will. And again, your insurance providers, if you're going to get cybersecurity insurance and those kinds of things, often you can you can negotiate getting training as part of that contract cost. Um, so that's another place to think about that. Yeah, and the training space has actually gotten pretty mature at this point. There is a lot of really really great content that is 
informational and engaging and entertaining and accessible that you know it is made knowing that this isn't just being made for technical people and that folks really need to understand this and the production quality uh, of the the content is really great and it's it's not all that expensive there there are many providers out there that put out really really great like training video libraries with their own LMS that you can get it through and then and be able to track you know deliver the, the the content but also track like who's done it and who hasn't and and keep on top of that so you know you know if if the the you know receptionist or or whoever you know hasn't taken their training yet like you can follow up with them and uh, you're not left just wondering well I think everybody's gotten trained I would also encourage a small business owner to look to their banks as well. Not just big Wall Street banks, but a lot of regional banks are also having a business outreach arm that includes cybersecurity training as well. So that's another place you can go to ask for help that should be part of your business engagement with that partner. That's a great recommendation. I never knew that. It kind of leads to my my next question. Um, you know, I work with a lot of companies and you bring up the issue of cybersecurity, and they say, "Oh yeah, we have we have virus software, so we're 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 all good, we're we're fine." Can you can you kind of walk through ways where security can be breached even with virus software? Because I think people have this false sense of security just because they have virus software on their computers. Yep. So the first thing I'd say is it doesn't matter how much security you have, you're still at risk of being breached just by having a computer and having internet access, right? So so whether you have just virus or whether you have four or five different security tools, the risk is still out there. You may have mitigated it, but you never get that to zero unless you shut the doors and shut up shop, right? But the, what virus, antivirus software is designed to do is to de- it's designed to protect the laptop or the desktop or the server from getting malicious software installed on that. But there are there are actually a lot of other ways that an attacker could get access to your data and be able to interrupt your business operations or to steal that data if confidentiality is a concern. And often it's by phishing your employees and getting them to voluntarily give up their login credentials. And then the attacker will use those login credentials, which are legitimate, and get access to that data, and they use those login credentials then to get to the information that they're looking for, or to disrupt the system that if they if that's what they want to do. And it doesn't matter whether you have antivirus software on your laptop or not. If an employee clicks on a link and put goes to a fake website and keys in their login information, then game over, right? It's just going to happen. So antivirus is important. It's it's not something that I would say you shouldn't have, but it's only one tool in the toolbox. Um, and and that's really the problem with security. And and unfortunately, a lot of small business owners are, are asking questions where they want assurance that if they do X, then they're good, then they're protected. It doesn't work that way, right? Um you, you have a responsibility to do a certain amount of baseline security stuff, depending on the kind of business that you're running. But even if you do that, it's not going to guarantee that you're not going to be impacted. So this is where we get back to this conversation around training and awareness and knowing what to look for and practicing how you will respond if the worst happens so that you can do that quickly and efficiently and with the minimum amount of disruption to your business, right? So... Um, unfortunately, there are no silver bullets in the world of cybersecurity and protection. What do you think, AC? Yeah, I, uh, our, our last caller was uh, asking another question that we, we talked a little bit about antivirus software as well. And in addition to the the virus software, you know, the, the virus software is looking for like fingerprints. It's it's looking to identify based on a, a specific signature fingerprint that that software is bad, but it doesn't take a whole lot for a, a, an actor. You know, a, a, I don't want to use the term hacker because I like to use the term hacker in a good way. Like as people who who do research, um, criminal. It doesn't take much for a criminal to make it a slight change to that program to where the fingerprint is now different and it's now a different program and it won't detect. And so 
sort of the next generation products look at behavior and what the, 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 the program is doing on the computer when it's executed. Uh, but by that point, like it's already running now on your computer. So you're one step closer already to a really bad day. And, and then the, the next group of products after that are ones that build in monitoring. So now you've got, you know, sort of the AV traditional that you have, you, you've got it watching for behavior, but then you actually add in some additional features for monitoring as well. And that's really, really valuable in uh, small businesses because then you end up with a vendor who's able to provide 24-7 monitoring. So when an alert happens, you don't have somebody in the office, you know, the, the thing pops up on their computer and say, hey, we, we quarantined this or something. And well, they're in the middle of a phone call, so they're going to close it and nobody ever thinks about it. Nobody really recognizes, wait, that, that actually needs to be investigated to see if we're okay. Having that third party uh, be able to monitor that stuff. And then they've got experts who, because they're monitoring lots of different businesses, they see this stuff day in and day out across lots of different businesses. So it's not the first time they've ever seen this and they know what to do. And if there is something that needs done, like they know what to look for on your machine to know like, did this make any changes? Did this, you know, do something now that we need to worry about? And they can now escalate back to you as the customer and say, hey, this, you know, this thing happened. It's on this specific machine. You know, we did this and this to limit what it did, but some other action still needs to be done. So we need to get that machine, disconnect from the network or whatever, and, and do something to it. Have the IT people work on it or, or most likely wipe it and started over from scratch, basically. Uh, so just having that that software is only a piece of it. It's being able to take the information the software gives you and not just know what to do with it, but actually be able to do something with it as well. So you've got to operationalize that. Right, that makes sense. One of the, the things I struggle with, I work with businesses in an industry that have a lot of personal data. So um, these are investment managers, they have clients, they have access to a lot of highly sensitive information like bank accounts, addresses, social security numbers, copies of IDs. Um, so I always counsel them that this is highly sensitive data. The SEC has guidelines on cybersecurity. You really need to be diligent in making sure that you secure that data and keep it um, keep it protected. What are some best practices for companies that have access to that sensitive data? What are some best practices to make sure that that data is protected right from the beginning? Um, you know, sometimes it's not the company, it's it's the, the client that may, you know, they'll just, they'll email a copy of their driver's license or something without encrypting it. So what are what are some best practices for businesses that have access to that type of personal data? If you're going to have customers and clients in that situation, you have to start with some training. I, I, I continue to go back to the training thing, right? Every employee in that company, even if it's a small company, needs to understand that that is personal data that is going to be regulated, particularly in the finance industry, but most states also have some on-the-books regulation about protecting um, what we call PII or, or personally identifiable information. And there are, so there are going to be state regulations, there are likely to be industry regulations, and your folks need to understand what they're obligated to do. And some of those regulations get particularly prescriptive as well. So it's not just you must protect this, but you must do it in this way. And if you have an incident, you must tell us within a certain time period, and it could be anywhere from 12 hours to 72 hours, for example. So knowing ahead of time what you're obligated to do from a compliance perspective is is a great place to start. More practically, I would say the business should sit down and think about why they collect the data in the first place. And they should have processes in place in terms of how they receive it, how they handle it and store it, and particularly how they dispose of it. A lot of the problems that happen with small to medium-sized businesses is they accumulate personal data of customers like dust bunnies. Like they just, they collect it and they collect it and they keep it and they keep it and they keep it. And then when they are, when there is an incident, when they're hacked, they're like, 
oh, not only do I have to tell my 10,000 existing customers, I've also got to tell the 30,000 other people we touched whose data we collected that we really didn't need to be holding on to. And now they've got this enormous breach. They're exposed to fines. They're exposed to litigation. So having an understanding of your data lifecycle and not keeping data that you don't need is really important. The second thing is look at the your business processes and how you handle that data. So to your example, um, have you can't stop customers from emailing you personal data. They, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it. But internally within the organization, do you email stuff to one another or do you put it up on a protected cloud-based server and it never comes down to your laptop or desktop where if your laptop or desktop is stolen, now the data is exposed. So thinking about those storage and handling procedures can be a way to go. And then you can think about the technology controls that we might want to wrap around that. So again, things like multi-factor authentication for when you log into systems, making sure that your laptops and tablets and others are encrypted. And again, your, your service providers can help make sure all these things are in place. Um, using password managers. One of the big problems we see, particularly in small organizations, is people reuse the same password at work that they use on Twitter or wherever, right? And it's and, their pet's name. <laughs> and it's their pet, and it's easily guessed, and it's all of those things. You, there are password managers; they're free, and they help you generate passwords. That I I use lots of passwords. I really only know one, and that's the master password to my password vault. Right? We need to get our people in the habit of using password managers, for example. So there there are things like that. But really, to me, the, the core of it is you've got to be really intentional as a business about what you what data you collect and why and how long you keep it for. That's probably your biggest, freest control that you can invest in. That's one of the things that kind of fascinates me about the privacy space because it's a I mean, it's an overlapping discipline with security, but it's its own entire field. Uh, and but one of the things that, that I find fascinating about privacy is it exists at that intersection of like the business and security and technology, because that's the why. Like, why are we collecting this data? What are we going to do to it? How do we do with it? Where are we getting value out of that data? Um, so it's a really, really interesting place. Uh, but then, as Helen was was mentioning, like you've got all these other facets of it where um, you have to know like how that data is classified and be able to know in your systems is this customer data, this you know private data, whether it's PII, the personally identifiable information, or if it's maybe data that they've generated that's about them uh, as well that may not necessarily exactly be PII, but other other forms of their data, um, you know, knowing which systems that's in, so uh, you know how you classify your data, how you make sure your systems are labeled so that you know where it is and who has access to it and all of that. And how it's being used, who it's being shared with on a third party, because again, once you start getting this really valuable data, like you end up working with third parties to get more value out of that data, and you have you end up having to share this data just out of the nature of doing business and making the most out of it. Uh, so the laws that are in place, whether it's GDPR or California or New York or or wherever, uh, the the there are stipulations that not just that you have to notify in a breach with a certain amount of time and who you're going to notify, but also that you're able to facilitate requests from those people to find out like what data do you have on me? I mean, first you, I mean, you have to make sure that they know you're collecting the data, what you're going to use it for. You have to be able to clearly communicate that, but that they can come to you and say, what data do you have on me? Like they can audit you for the data and ask for copies of that. They can ask you to delete it, as as Helen mentioned. And having those mechanisms in place from a business process standpoint is important. And there's a lot of technology mechanisms that have to support that. So you have to make a lot of very careful decisions as you're setting up the technology and the business processes together in order to make sure you're compliant. And it is there be dragons. You know, this is a, a dangerous area and it's it's so valuable. Like you're not going to tell customers don't collect this data, but 
you know, to they just have to be mindful of if we don't need it, it's a liability to us. We only should collect what we have and have a defined need for. I would definitely recommend any organization that's collecting PII or something that would be considered very sensitive to engage with a law, a privacy lawyer to help understand what's going on in that space. When you look at sanctions that have come to companies from the FTC, for example, or other consumer watchdog organizations, where they come down the heaviest is when an organization is telling customers that they take security and privacy seriously. And then you find out post-breach that they weren't doing basic things. And that becomes, um, uh, I'm forgetting the legal term, but basically there's a truth in advertising problem that's going on where there's a disconnect between what you're telling your customers and what you're actually doing. And so engaging with security and privacy consultants who can help you make sure that what you're telling your customers is indeed what you're doing is going to be really important. And there is a state-by-state privacy initiative going on. So California's got its own privacy law. Illinois's got its own privacy law. There are privacy elements baked into financial regulations. So the, the legislative, the regulatory landscape around privacy and security is really complicated. And it would be very hard for a small business owner of any kind of work vertical to really know what's going on without engaging with the professional. Um, So again, you you start with your lawyer when you're talking to your lawyer as a small business owner, making sure that you're considering security, but also privacy. It's going to be, it's going to be a, a big deal. And it will, it is something that is really hard to go back and fix after the fact. So you've got to get in front of it pretty, pretty early, the privacy side more than the security side, actually. Excellent points. And they can help you make not make mistakes once you already have the data about changing and doing something else with it that you haven't told the, the people whose data it is that you're going to do. Um, in, in small businesses moving fast, it's very easy to forget, you know, you have some new opportunity come up, some new partnership, some new whatever. And, oh, yeah, we've, yeah, we can do that. We can share this information and then come to realize that that wasn't, wasn't part of the deal and you got to go back and make sure that that's included and communicated and agreed to. I think we got maybe time for one more. Sure. Awesome. Um, in the post-COVID world, uh, I'm seeing a lot more remote businesses. So they, you know, they don't have a, a physical office. So what are some of the challenges specific to maintaining some security protocols when your workforce is um, in various states working from home, in some cases, working on their own computers. Um, you know, what are what are some of the the protocols that should be in place for a remote work environment? What could companies, particularly startup companies, do to address some of these challenges right out of the gate? So I'm going to sound like a broken record. Um, training is important. Um, one of the, so the main difference really between having people in the office and having people working from home is that in the office, you know, as a business that the only people in the office are authorized to be there. You can't know that when somebody's working at their kitchen table or the WeWork center down the road or the Starbucks or whatever, right? So you have to make sure that your employees understand what can be shared publicly and what can't and how to conduct their business in a way that protects that, even if they're in a public space. Um, So, you know, not leaving a laptop unlocked on the kitchen table, not letting your kids use your work machines, your laptops and tablets to gain, to do homework or, or whatever, right? If it, if it is their personal machine, you may need to be thinking about the technology that your employees are using to access systems. So most small businesses are using SaaS providers, cloud-based software providers, and their employees are getting to that data through a web browser. And if that's the case, we need to make sure that the device that the user is using, whether that's a personal device or a a company-owned device, 
is up to date on software patching, is up to date in the in the software it's being used, that the browser is up to date as well, that there, there is local antivirus. So you get into weird questions of, am I going to put some kind of security application on someone's personal device to ensure that their endpoint is secure while they're using it? Or are we going to keep all of our data in the cloud so it doesn't matter how secure the endpoint is because our data is protected in this cloud environment? So you're going to need, if you've got people working from home and particularly if you've got people working on their own devices, you are going to need to bring in somebody who can give you some technology advice as to the best way to manage the security of that space. The challenge, there's pros and cons to this though, right? When everyone's sitting in the same office and there's a power outage, everybody in the office can't work. That's a problem for your business. When they're all spread out at wherever they're working from home, chances are there's like two of them that experience a power outage at the same time and everyone keeps working, right? So having a distributed workforce can actually be quite resilient and that's great. Um, The challenge though is if the central systems they're all accessing goes down, how do you communicate with them to let them know what's happening, that it's that the systems are back up and running again. So thinking about your communication channels when you've got a lot of remote workers is also something that you need to think about if you're going to be resilient as a business. You may not have you may have a cyber attack that causes an outage, but it might just be something basic like uh I don't know, your all your employees walk out or something. But you're gonna to have to need to have communication channels that uh, aren't just email or aren't just Slack or aren't just this or that because any one of those channels could be disrupted. And so how are you going to communicate with people that you can't see is a really important part of your resiliency and your security strategy as well. One of the things you touched on is the the third-party service providers, which is interesting because, again, I work with a, a lot of startups. Oh, yeah, we, we only use third-party service providers. We don't have any downloaded software. We're good. But, like, for example, even, um, like, file storage. So if you're, if you're downloading copies of PDFs to your computer in order to view them, you suddenly have all of this information on your computer. So having the protocols in place proves more important. Yeah, and here's the other thing I'd say about that. Just because you're using a third-party provider does not absolve you of the responsibility of ensuring that the information is correct. And when I was the CISO at Ohio State and when I did security at JP Morgan and when I was and now that I'm at Cisco, our customers are not going to accept me saying, we took your data and we're using a third party to manage it and host it and, and whatever, and they've had an incident Sorry about that, but it's between you and them, right? Because the customers don't get the choice of who our vendors are. We do. And so we own the risk on behalf of our customers. So you can't you can you can transfer and outsource the operational responsibility of protecting this, but your brand and your reputation is as much at risk, whether the data loss comes directly from you or from someone you've contracted with to provide services to your customers. You can't divorce yourself of that. Um, And I think sometimes people go, I've got a vendor and so I don't have to worry. And they forget that they still have to worry and they are as much at risk if there's a problem. Yeah. You control how you set up user accounts in those systems. You control removing user accounts when somebody leaves the company. Like you control how you use that system. Like you said, whether or not you download data from it or not. Um, You know, if you don't have policies in place that tell people don't, you cannot download software out of the system. It must stay in the system. Uh, They're not going to know. And if they're not, if they're not trained and being remote presents a lot of different uh, things that come up that impact security and just having really good, well-documented processes and policies and procedures around that stuff that folks know what to do and they can count on each other to do it because it's documented and trained and people aren't making mistakes. And if somebody misses a step, like somebody else may notice, if it's not defined, (laughs) let alone written down, you're not going to have that. You're not going to be able to mistake-proof things. You're not going to be able to improve those processes, and you're not going to be able to really protect the company in these, 
don't even know what to call it, not edge cases exactly, but these, these things that happen on the periphery of the business, like onboarding and offboarding, that aren't part of your core business activities, but they're so important when it comes to security. It sounds like the, the processes are, in some cases, more important than the technology. That's kind of the message I'm hearing from both of you. Absolutely. We have a tendency to think as security is a technology problem with a technology solution. Uh, and that's not always the case. It's not always the case. And and it a, a solution does not have to involve a new tool to get it done. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, at a previous company, we did some f uh, internal phishing exercises uh, where we we sent out a dummy email that, you know, we just wanted to know what people would do. Would they identify it as a fish? Would they report it if they did? Or would they succumb to whatever the, that was? As it turned out, it was the legal department that most fell for this particular kind of fish. Not because they didn't care about security and not because they were silly. Their business process was that people would send them things by email and they like attachments and they download those attachments and they would do that hundreds of times a day. That was just their business process, right? So the solution isn't put in an email security tool or give them MFA or what. No, the solution was change their business process. So instead of getting a document that they download, print out, whatever, we've got online contract review in the cloud, electronic signatures and so on and so forth, right? Just that alone reduced that click factor uh, immeasurably. And so a lot of the time it is, well, what's the business process? And can we make the business process inherently more secure without adding friction to the way business gets done? That's important. But how do we do that? And, and that's often the place you want to start. And I imagine that change that you just described also made their lives much easier. Like it probably reduced manual steps and allowed them to be more efficient. So, you know, that's another one of those things, just like rather than saying, hey, we got to be more secure, it's like, hey, we can make this process better and easier and faster for you. Nobody has to know that it's making them also more secure. Like focus on enabling people. Yes. Was that helpful, Christine? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you, Christine. So we had two really uh, great callers with really wonderful questions uh, that highlight security and business and the way the two intersect. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you want to leave folks with on the, the show based on the questions we had and the conversations we had? One of the things about security and doing security and being secure is it's super contextual to the kind of organization you have. It's it depends on how big the organization is. It depends on the kind of industry you're in, your location, the kind of data that you use, the kind of technology you use. And so it's really hard to go out as a small business owner and find advice that is applicable to your environment really well. So it can feel very complicated. And I think the questions we heard reflected that sort of frustration of, this, where do I start? This is really hard. Um I would continue to encourage small business folks to think about um, training their employees and using the freely available training that, that is out there that can be really excellent to help them just raise awareness of security things and help your employees and your partners not only be secure at work, but be secure at home and protect their families and their communities. Um, so that's one thing. Two, I think you can limit the risk of the work you do by being really intentional about what kind of data you have, how you keep it, where you keep it, how you get rid of it. Um, and three, I think there is a there is a growing industry of service providers who are standing ready and willing to support your environment, to monitor your environment, to help you respond if response is necessary. So you don't have to go it alone. So, you know, we there is help out there and I think we should you know, be, be comforted by that. The last thing I'd say is there is a book I would recommend. It's written by a guy named Chris Castaldo and it's called Startup Secure. And it's written for small businesses, startups, obviously, and gives you guidance around the kinds of things we've talked about today and, the, and how to 
you know, how to begin. Um, and it's a really excellent resource and I would recommend it highly. Excellent. I will put the uh, name of that book and the author in the show description so that folks can find it. Speaking of finding things, where can folks find you online? Um, professionally speaking, you can find me at my website. So CISOHelen.com is my website. And from there, you can get to my LinkedIn profile, my Twitter, my Mastodon, my whatever. Um, and you can also find my book there if you're so inclined. And my blog. I blog on a regular basis as well. So if the topic's of interest, you can you can follow along. Perfect. A lot of good information there. Hopefully folks will, will go see, seek out some of the other stuff that you've written because I've it's really good, folks. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I always enjoy reading Helen's blog posts when she puts them out on LinkedIn and, and Twitter because she's always got good insights. Uh, Helen, thank you for coming on the show today. This has been a lot of fun, really good conversation. And I think this episode will be really, really valuable to small business owners uh, that are curious and, and trying to learn what they need to do to uh, protect their business and what they should be thinking about. I loved your intentionality tie in there because it ties into the, the mindfulness uh, approach that uh, that I like to take and sort of the namesake of the, the, <laughs> the podcast itself. Uh, thank you again. And as always, a huge thank you to you, our listeners as well. Um, I hope the show was valuable to you. If it was, please consider sharing it with somebody else. Uh, you can always hit me up on Twitter at Accidental CISO and let me know what you think. I love interacting with folks. And lastly, you can support the show through our merch store uh, at shop.mindfulsmbshow.com. Uh, we've got some show branded merchandise and gear and t-shirts and hoodies and coffee mugs and that kind of stuff. Everything's going to be 20% off uh, this weekend through Cyber Monday for Black Friday through Cyber Monday. Uh, there will be a promo code in the show description and it will also be on the uh, website, so it should be easy to find. I am Accidental CISO and until next time, stay mindful. Don't miss our next episode. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Visit Fosivity.com slash podcast. That's F-O-C-I-V-I-T-Y dot com slash podcast for show information and links to our social media pages. This has been the Mindful Business Security Show brought to you by Fosivity.